Now, there's a famous quote that's credited to Benjamin Franklin. Many people have said it. I'm sure many of you have heard it. Uh, it's in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Right? It's pretty famous. He was writing a letter to his friend in 1789. He was telling them that the new constitution had been established and that it promised permanency. But, of course, that promise lacked the certainty of death and taxes, right? It lacked the certainty that death and taxes have. And he was obviously onto something, right? Because we actually don't operate in certainty about much, with much of anything, right? I order my coffee on the Starbucks app and I hope that it's going to be received and I hope that uh, when I get there, it's going to be ready and that doesn't always happen, right? I can't be certain, right? For instance, I did that same thing at Chipotle one Sunday and went there and it was closed, right? Paid for it, was expecting to be able to get my burrito, couldn't even get in the door. Right? We get into relationships, right? And we hope that the other person has our best interests at heart. But even after the most careful consideration, sometimes it turns out that they don't, right? We hope that the chair we sit on won't break, but I've had that happen to me unexpectedly too, right? What can we be certain about? Right? Our best systematic attempt at proving Benjamin Franklin wrong has been through the scientific method. That's been humanity's way towards certainty, repeatable procedures that yield the same results. But even then, we get in there with that pesky thing called human error, right? And having taken four semesters of chemistry and two of physics, I can attest to the effects of human error on, on laboratory experiments. Uh, I was, yeah, that wasn't my forte. Uh, but science has its limitations, right? It has its place, right? Science has its place, but it does have its limitations. And I think that we crave the certainty that science gives us. And so often we overstretch it to do things that it was never intended to do. All right, we say things like, I believe in science, or trust the science, or because science, or science says... Right? We talk about science like it's an entity, right? when in fact it's a method of experimentation. And it's good. Science is good. I'm not anti-science. But it doesn't solve life's most unsettling certainty, does it? Right? We can all be certain of one thing, and the one thing we can all be certain of is death. Right? And through science, we've done a great job of delaying that certainty, right? preventing preventing it prematurely, and I'm grateful for that, but we will never solve it. So how has humanity historically dealt with the one thing we're all certain about? We've often looked to spiritual solutions to our one certain problem. Right? Some try to add meaning to their short lives, maybe with even an a-spiritual solution before annihilation, right? Some seek out an afterlife, right? Or some have a like cling to an assurance that life goes on after death with something like reincarnation. As Christians, we believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, became flesh and lived among humanity, right? As the person of Jesus. We believe that he suffered and died to conquer sin, that he rose victorious over death, we believe that Jesus is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
Right? We believe in the Holy Spirit who ministers on earth today to bring people to faith in Jesus. He indwells the church. He transforms us day by day into the likeness of Jesus, and we await Jesus' return and restoration of all things. Right? Ultimately, the resurrection of the dead to eternal life with him forever. Right? That's what the church believes. Right? The church Believers in Christ, right, we believe that Jesus solves our unsolvable and certain problem of death by offering life to those who have put their faith in him, right? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We believe those things. But are we certain of them? Are we certain of them? Should we be certain of them? Do we need to be certain? Do we have to be certain to claim these things as our own? Right? Is that how faith works? I want to talk about doubting Thomas today, as I just talked about with the kids. And you've probably heard of doubting Thomas if you've been around the church at all. Maybe you haven't, and that's okay too. Maybe you've been called a doubting Thomas at one point in your life, or you've heard it as a derogatory term, right, for not having enough faith. Um, Thomas was one of Jesus's 12 disciples, right, and he got this reputation in church history as being a doubter, right, because as you heard in the scripture reading, he wanted to see Jesus before believing that he had been raised. He didn't want to just take his friend's word for it. Now, but the term doubting Thomas, it's actually, it's not a great way to describe him, right? Doubting Thomas is both too soft a term and too harsh a label for this disciple of Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But I want to take us through this passage, and I want to look at Thomas and his encounter with Jesus with fresh eyes. Not as people 2,000 years later who think that we're better and smarter than him, right? Because if we do that, if we just label him Doubting Thomas and we write him off, uh, because that's what we do when we label people, it's a way to write them off, uh, if we do that, we're going to miss what the Lord has for us in this passage. Right? We're not better than Thomas. So let's open to John 20. We're going to look at verses 24 through 29, and we're going to move through three natural markers in this text. We're going to look at Thomas's unbelief. We're going to look at his encounter with Jesus, and then we're going to talk about his belief in Jesus. So his unbelief his encounter, and his eventual belief in Jesus. So just a little bit about Thomas. He's one of the 12 chosen disciples, right? 12 men that Jesus chose to be closest to him, the ones that he explained everything to, the ones he took extra time for, the ones he prepared for ministry, the witnesses to his many miracles and teachings, right? They were there for it all. Thomas was there for it all, and they were close friends. Now, aside from our passage today, Thomas shows up two other times in John's gospel. One, where Jesus is walking towards certain death on his journey to Jerusalem, and Thomas is amped up, and he tells the other disciples, let's go die with him. Right? That's all we see in that John, John 11 passage. The other is when Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he's going to leave them. And he says that he's going away to the Father and that he'll come back for them to bring them where uh, he is. And Thomas asks, how will we know the way? Right? And Jesus says, I'm 
the way. And so some have contended that since he asked a question, that he has this history of doubting. They've tried to build this persona around him, and I don't think that's fair, and I don't think it's accurate uh, based on what we have in the text. Right? Being curious, asking for clarification, it's not the same thing as doubting. Right? And sadly, I've talked to people who have a long history in the church, and I've met quite a few who say that their curiosity, even as children, was met with contention or avoidance by leaders or parents in the church, right? by the folks who are supposed to be the mature Christians. Right? And if you're here today and that's you, I'm sorry. Right? Honest questions deserve thoughtful answers. In John 14, Jesus didn't correct Thomas for asking a question. How will we know how to get there? He answered it with patience. Right? And so we don't have much about Thomas to build out this full picture of his character. We can only deal with what we have. And our passage today is actually the most extensive treatment we have of Thomas. And so let's look at John 20, 24. Remember, just before this passage, the risen Jesus, he appeared to his disciples, right? They got to see him in person. They rejoiced. He commissioned them as apostles, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, he said. And that's important because we see later in the Bible that the big A apostles, right, those who were given the authority, right, are those who physically saw the risen Jesus, right? And Thomas wasn't there says, but Thomas, in verse 24, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so Easter evening, Jesus appears to his disciples, but Thomas isn't there. He missed it. How do you think that felt? For Thomas, right? He comes back. They're all filled with joy and excitement. We've seen the Lord. This is awesome. Right? Now we read the passage. We know Jesus is going to appear later, but that's actually not for another week. Right? Read closely. It's a week later. So for seven days or for a week since the first Easter, Thomas has been listening to his friends talk about their time with the risen Messiah, and he missed it. Why wasn't he there? The scripture doesn't tell us, right? This happened in a locked room where the disciples were hiding out together, but he wasn't with them. But his attitude does give us a little hint, right? It looks like he's kind of given up, right? It's only the third day since Jesus was taken from them, beaten and crucified, right? It's only the third day. It hasn't been long. His hopes are dashed. Jesus is dead, and he's separated from the group, right? They're gathered together in some sort of solidarity in a locked room, and he's not there. And now he spends the next week listening to them, right? And, and the way the verb is in the original Greek from when they were telling him, it's as if they kept telling him. It's like a continuous action. So they kept telling him that they had seen the Lord. It's not like they told him once. They probably couldn't stop talking about it. And his response is honest, but it's also hyperbolic. It's extreme. It's even gruesome, right? He wants to see the mark of the nails. He wants to put his finger in them. He wants to put his hand inside Jesus' wound in his side. It's kind of gross, right? 
If he can't do that, he will never believe, he says. Because, you know, the account goes that Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross and a Roman executioner shoved a spear into his side to make sure he was dead. And so the label doubting Thomas is too harsh because it doesn't really capture the full complex experience of this man, of this disciple, of Jesus and people like him. Right? There are barriers to his belief that I think we can relate to. Right? Pain, shame, right? fear, confusion, blame. Right? And at the, at the same time, this label of doubting Thomas, it's, it's a little too gentle, it's a little too soft, because Thomas did not just doubt. Right? Thomas did not just doubt, he didn't believe. Right? And doubts are reservations, right? They're cautions, they're, they're questions. But Thomas isn't talking about doubt, he's talking about believing in the risen Jesus. He does not believe. He says he will never believe unless his conditions are met. So for a week, Thomas is living this believer-adjacent life, right? He's living this Christian-adjacent life. And, and do you understand what I mean by that, right? He's among people who believe, but he is not one of them. Uh, when Leanna and I lived in Dallas for three years, we attended a large church. Uh, I'm not sure they make them any other way down there. <laughs> But our church would have baptism services once a quarter, and we watched and we celebrated a lot of baptisms during our time there. But as I listened to the life stories of the folks who were getting baptized, there was this running theme that I found really surprising and, and very different from the stories that I heard of people who were baptized here on Cape Cod. They'd step into the water, they'd have their paper in their hand to read their testimony, and like clockwork, their story would begin like this. I grew up in a loving Christian home, right? And these were adults, right? I grew up in a loving Christian home, and these are adults getting baptized, sometimes into late adulthood. And they'd say something like this. They were baptized when they were very young, but they didn't really believe, right? They had done it because it seemed like the right thing to do. They knew all the songs from Sunday school. They knew all the chants. They went to all the events. And then when they moved away from mom and dad, their world crumbled, right? Most didn't even take issue with the church. They didn't have a problem with the church. Many talked about how they enjoyed the benefits of being among the community. But when they went off on their own, they quickly realized that they were being held up by the faith of others, not their own faith, right? Jesus was their Lord. Jesus was their God. But, but is he mine? Because when the guardrails are removed, right, they hit, a, they hit a crisis, and their lives took these steep and dramatic turns toward destruction. Some of these stories were worse than the stories I've heard from people who didn't grow up in church. Right? They were living Christian-adjacent lives. And for a week after the resurrection, Thomas walked around with ten disciples who believed in the risen Christ, and he was not one of them. See, what's different about Thomas and maybe these brothers and sisters who were getting baptized in Dallas is that Thomas, for, for whatever reason, was honest about it, right? And we don't always create an environment that promotes this kind of honesty. 
right? We look at him as a stick in the mud, but he's not. He tells 10 men that he spent three years with, right, walking with Jesus, absorbing his teaching, witnessing miracles. He tells them, I will never believe, right? He's honest, Thomas, right? And Jesus is going to work with that. I want to say this from the stage because that this is not the kind of church that you need to pretend at. Right. It's hard walking around, walking alongside people who are talking about the Lord all the time, using language that you might not understand. And there's this temptation that you need to play along. Right. The Lord has done this for me. Trust the Lord and and all sorts of advice. And maybe you don't even believe any of it. Right. That can be very lonely. Right. That's an unsustainable way to be in a community. Right. Where a church where we believe that you can belong among us before you believe. And I want to be clear about what I mean by that. I don't mean that you are ever a Christian before you believe, but I mean that you are welcomed into this community, whether you're exploring, curious, skeptical, doubting, unbelieving, you will be given gospel, safety, and time. You have a place set for you. At the same time, it will greatly benefit you to know and be known for where you stand with Jesus. The church is made up of believers in Christ, right? And baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are two things that we do that we reserve only for believers. And and when we do it, you probably feel that separation, but it's good for you, right? Not one of those folks getting baptized shared a story of finding Jesus when they were pretending that they had already found him. Each of them came to a place where they had to acknowledge that they did not know him for themselves. And we have to, in some ways, admire Thomas for his honesty here, right? I don't think it would have been easy to share that with his fellow disciples, right? He's honest, and Jesus works with that. Thomas is about to get his encounter with Jesus. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were indoor again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus appears out of thin air in a locked room, right? They're still locked in, fearing persecution, and he says, peace be with you, in a moment where they're not feeling much peace, right? Shalom. Jesus is peace. And these disciples get the privilege of experiencing his presence and his peace in a way that nobody before them has ever been able to. Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. He says, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Jesus was listening to Thomas. Right? He's listening to you too. He heard Thomas and now he repeats back to Thomas his demands in the form of an invitation. Go ahead. Right, your gruesome request, consider it granted. Right, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Right, the love and the patience of Jesus are on display here. Right, he doesn't come in saying, why didn't you believe like the others? Right, Why didn't you believe all the times that I told you this was going to happen? What's wrong with you? You had a unique privilege. right? You had a unique experience with me that nobody else has ever had. Nobody else is going to have that again. I chose you. 
right? He didn't come in hot like that, right? He would have been justified in doing so. It, it doesn't make sense to us, right? He was with Jesus for three years. He was privy to information that many other people were not, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's just like, here I am, right? Go ahead. And then he tells him bluntly, don't be faithless, but believe. And this translation, we're using the Christian Standard Bible, uh, this translation is actually more accurate than the ones that say don't doubt, but believe, as it says in other Bibles, because the, the meaning isn't lost, but the word is actually, um, it's apistos, which is, it means a belief, like the way you put an A in front of something to mean without right? It's like a belief, without belief, right? And so don't be without belief, right? But believe, right? And believe, which is, which is again, this term and the reason why doubting Thomas doesn't fit, right? Don't be faithless, but believe, Jesus says. Here's the thing. Jesus is presenting to him all the evidence that he's asked for. It's in front of him, Right? He can have it, but he still needs to believe. Right? Even the, the certainty of the evidence isn't enough. He needs to place his trust in Jesus. And some of you might have heard of uh, the Christian apologist Lee Strobel. Uh, he's well known for uh, the, his, um, in the Christian world for his book, The Case for Christ. And he's a writer and he's a former atheist that struggled with the claims of Christianity. He's a super smart guy, graduated from Yale Law, wrote for the Chicago Tribune. Now, he believed that people created God because they were afraid of death. And that's a fair hypothesis. But unlike so many, right, he didn't just leave that hypothesis unchecked. Um, and as an atheist whose wife had recently become a Christian, he recognized that if the claims of Christianity are true, the implications for his life were huge. And this is what I appreciate about him. He did the work, right? Some of us require uh, more than others on our journey to faith, right? Not everybody requires two years worth of work like he did, but he had specific questions he was willing to work through and find answers to, and he spent nearly two years probing evidence for Jesus the way a lawyer and a journalist would. He uncovered all sorts of interesting things for himself. I mean, he arrived to the point where Christianity was no longer intellectually untenable, as he originally thought, uh, and you can read his books for his story, but he realized that it took more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. But even with this, his journey still was not complete until he himself accepted the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life from God. That's what he even says, right? Even with all the evidence that he laid out, he still had to believe at some point, right? Was there more research that could have been done? Absolutely. Did he answer every question that he had with certainty? Absolutely not. At some point, you just have to believe it. And in the process of seeking Jesus, he found him. Right? Not every journey is the same, right? But at the end of the day, your own personal faith in Jesus is required. And so Jesus tells Thomas, yeah, you can have your demand, but don't be faithless. Be a believer, and Thomas responded to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. 
my Lord and my God. Right? He's no longer believer adjacent. He's a believer, right? Jesus is his Lord, not just the Lord of the other 10 disciples, right? Jesus is his God, not just the God of the 10 who saw him a week ago. Right? We only have four words here, and two of them are repeats. My Lord, my God. But so much is being said in this statement. Right? This isn't a simple exclamation like, oh my God, or, or my word, this is amazing. Right? We know that because that would have been blasphemy for Jewish people like Jesus, Thomas, and the other disciples. He would have never said that. It's a declaration of who Jesus is. Not only does Thomas believe the resurrection, but now he understands it. He knows what it means. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And at the same time that our author, author John, he gives us this scene, he's simultaneously weaving it in at the end of his book to bring us full circle. The Gospel of John opens, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now here, towards the end of the book, this stubborn skeptic, right, he utters the most profound and the deepest confession in the book of John, my Lord, my God, right, going from I'll never believe to calling Jesus my Lord, my God. And pay close attention, although a lot of artistic depictions of this moment, I don't know if you pay attention to them, but um, they usually show Thomas with his hand in the side of Jesus or on his hand. John does not give us that detail. And many biblical scholars agree that John intends for us to see that Thomas did not take Jesus up on this offer because he no longer needed to. Right? There's an immediacy to his confession at the sight of Jesus. At the end of the day, it's faith that's required, not certainty. And Jesus recognizes the challenge behind that, but he also makes it clear that seeing him is not a requirement for faith. He says to Thomas in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so Thomas is the recipient of what I would call grace upon grace, something that is not promised to him. It's not required of Jesus to do it, right? It's not promised in everyone's life. But it is amazing to hear stories um, of Muslims in particular who have become Christians because Jesus has appeared in dreams, right? It's, it's very rare, Right? It's very rare. And I say this with caution because there are people who think that they can invoke Jesus like they would in some kind of seance, right? And when we get there, that's dangerous territory that can get wacky. We don't control God, right? When we take rare and miraculous things and we try to force them into being normative, we can get in trouble. But at the same time, God works as He will, right? And given the particular spiritual background of Islam, wrapping one's mind around Jesus as Lord and God is extremely challenging. If you talk to Muslims who were uh, Muslims who are currently Muslim, or Muslims who have become, or Christians who were formerly Muslim, they all say that, right? If you even read the biography of Nabil Qureshi, a Christian apologist who um, passed away a while back, he became a believer largely through dreams of Christ. And that's not unique to him. And of course, that Christ is the one that we find in the Bible, not contradictory in any way. 
Jesus says this, as amazing as that is, Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Right? That's us. God has revealed himself to those who have not seen him. Jesus recognizes the challenge of believing without seeing, but he knows it's possible. And he says, we are blessed. We are accepted by God. We are included in this invitation. Right? In fact, Jesus prays for us in John 17. He's facing his impending death, and he prays for his disciples. And then he says this in verse 20, John 17, 20. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus prayed for us and the world. Jesus is found in the word of God and his people in unity. We play a part in the world believing that he is Lord and that he is God. We can all relate to Thomas in one way or another, whether you're listening to this and you find yourself unsatisfied with the evidence or if you're a believer and you have your doubts. There's something for all of us in this passage because we get to see that Jesus is patient with us. We get to see that we can be honest with him. We can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with others. Jesus can handle our honesty. We see that if we truly seek him, we will find him. It was a week of being a non-believer, right? Being believer adjacent for Thomas, right? Two years of rigorous investigation for Lee Strobel. Sometimes it's decades for others. Other times you hear about people who had a more spontaneous conversion, right? God will do it however he chooses to do it. And John closes this section of his gospel by saying this in verse 30. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John was particular about which signs he chose, right? Super picky about what he included in this book. Think about it. Right? He was with Jesus for three years. He saw a lot. In fact, someone tracked it, and apparently this whole, in this whole gospel, there's roughly only 21 days of Jesus' life covered. Right? And why has, G, why has John chosen to share these particular snippets of Jesus' life? Well, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? And this account of Thomas made it in there because there's a lot of Thomases out there. Right? God cares about them. God wants you to see him. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to have life in his name. Or maybe you relate more to the other ten disciples in this season of life, right? And you're telling people close to you about the Jesus that you've seen, right? What he's done in your life and the people around you, they just don't see it, right? They just don't see Jesus. They just don't believe. Maybe it seems like they'll never believe. I will let this passage remind you that this is not your weight to carry. 
right? Thomas needed an encounter with Jesus. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive together with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. We can't make people alive in Christ. Only God can do that. We can't lend our faith out to others. He has to be their Lord. He has to be their God. Jesus is risen. Thomas saw him. Thomas believed in him. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe.